Let's continue uh, in our service here this morning by turning in our Bibles or your mobile device, or if you don't have either one of those, uh, the words will be up on the screen in a few moments, to Psalm 32. Like I said, we're doing a summer series in the Psalms. We're using the devotional, A Good Confession. Every week there's a Psalm of the Week that ties into the Catechism, and this morning's Psalm is Psalm 32. We're looking at the heart from a biblical perspective. And the heart from a biblical perspective is the core, the foundation, the fountain, the wellspring of all of our thoughts, feelings, desires, and choices. And this morning, we're going to look at the possibility of a happy heart. We're going to talk about the pursuit of a happy heart. You remember in the Declaration of Independence, we read that all men and women are created equal. And they're endowed with their creator with certain inalienable rights that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, that sounds great for the founding of a nation, but what are followers of Jesus Christ to think of that? Are we really to pursue happiness? The Bible clearly says yes. In Proverbs verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 13, it says, A happy heart makes the face cheerful, merry, gleeful glad. In Galatians 4, Paul's writing to the churches of Galatia in southern Turkey. They started off after being converted with great joy and gladness and relief and happiness. But then false teachers came in and told them they needed to follow the Jewish lifestyle in order to be blessed by God. And Paul says, what has happened to all your blessedness? What has happened to all your joy? What has happened all your happiness? Now listen, as we get started, I want to make sure you all know I'm very sensitive to those among us who are struggling. To those who are wrestling with difficult circumstances. And those circumstances are so pressing, it's, it, it feels almost impossible to experience any kind of joy. Or those among us who have been diagnosed with clinical depression. Maybe it's just been part of your family background. The chemistry in your family of origin for for generations. And we cannot ignore such brokenness and such pain. And I get that. But neither can we ignore that the Bible speaks clearly about the happiness, joy, gladness, glee, and cheerfulness that God longs for His children to experience. If you looked at your title, you noticed that I've misspelled happiness. I did it on purpose. It's happiness with, an, with a Y because it reminded me 
of a movie called The Pursuit of Happiness starring Will Smith. Will Smith, is this is based on a true story, plays the character uh, Chris Gardner. Chris Gardner, a young black man, he is trying to make it in this world. He's trying to do it right. He's trying to be a faithful dad. He's trying to be a faithful husband. He's trying to work hard. And he invests all the money he has with his wife and their child, invests it all in what's called a bone density scanner. It's supposed to be the latest, greatest medical device. It's going to make him a fortune. The problem is the bone density scanner is only marginally more accurate than an x-ray at about 10 times the cost. The company goes bankrupt. Chris Gardner goes bankrupt. His family is a wreck. Gardner then decides that he's going to join Dean Witter, the brokerage firm, back in the early 80s. And he's going to take an unpaid six-month internship along with scores of other Dean Witter wannabes, and only one is going to be chosen for the job. Chris Gardner's wife has had it. She says, you're a loser. You're never going to make it. All of these are just crazy dreams. I'm out of here. You keep your son. I'm going. So Chris Gardner and his son lived almost homeless for close to a year. We're going to pick up the action this morning on the last day of the six-month internship. You notice that in the course of the conversation, uh, the Dean Witter associates are talking with Chris about wearing a shirt. We need to realize that when he first had the interview for the internship, he was broke, he couldn't pay the rent, so he decided in exchange for rent to paint the apartments that he was living in. But when he was finishing painting, this is the night before the interview, police show up at his door. He's got a bunch of parking tickets. He can't pay them, so he's thrown in jail. And he has to go to the interview for this internship in these shabby paint clothes covered with paint. And so that's the comment about the shirts. Then you'll also see one of the bosses pull out a $5 bill and said, here. You need to realize that when Chris Gardner had absolutely no money at all except $5, he was sharing a cab ride with this boss. The boss had lost his wallet, and unbeknownst to the boss, Chris gave his last $5 to pay for the boss's taxi fare. And you're going to hear Chris Gardner talk about happiness. Chris, come Hi, Chris. Mr. Fromm, good to see you. Nice shirt. Thank you, sir. Chris. Hey, Jimmy. 
I thought I'd uh, wear a shirt today, um, you know, being the last day and all. Well, thank you. Thank you. We appreciate that. But um, wear one tomorrow, though, okay? Because tomorrow's going to be your first day. If you'd like to work here as a broker. Would you like that, Chris? Yes, sir. Good. We couldn't be happier. So, welcome. Was it as easy as it looked? No, sir. No, no sir, it wasn't. Good luck, Chris. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Not just by his wife, but everyone else. Chris Gardner was told, you'll never measure up. You can't do this. You'll never succeed. And his happy moment was knowing that they were all wrong. And he was able to accomplish his dream. By the way, that's the only beginning of his dream. Uh, in this true story, Charles Gardner went on to become successful at Dean Witter. And then he formed his own brokerage firm. And at last count, uh, Chris Gardner, who's still alive, actually he appears in the movie a few moments later, has a net worth of about $70 million. But even still, is that where happy moments come from? Proving other people wrong? Successfully landing a job that no one thought we could get? And are there just little moments of life related to circumstances that enable us to have happy moments? If I were to ask you right now to think about those small, happy moments in your lives, what comes to mind? As you consider the pandemic, have you experienced many happy moments 
during this season? Do you believe that happiness is an appropriate description of something believers are to pursue? Or is it something just for the Declaration of Independence? Well, David in Psalm 32 gives us the answer. We are called to pursue happiness. But happiness in a way that is defined by God through a pathway and a course that is also laid down by God. What is the pursuit of happiness for the Christian? That's what Psalm 32 is all about. So let's stand out of reverence for God's Word. Follow along with me as I read Psalm 32, verses 1 through 11. A maskil of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. May God bless the hearing and teaching of his inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. This is God's word. He gave it to us because he loves us. And believe it or not, he wants us to pursue happiness. But happiness in him. Let's pray. Father, we all want to be happy. We all want to be fulfilled. We all want to experience joy and gladness and cheerfulness. And God, we find ourselves in a broken world. We're broken people. We wrestle with sin regularly. So Lord, how can we be happy when all around us is broken? Holy Spirit, open our eyes. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. You'll notice that the title of the psalm is part of God's inspired word. It's called a maskil. A maskil means that Psalm 32 is a didactic psalm. Uh, Didactic is the Greek word for teaching. It's an instructional psalm. So Psalm 32 is written by David under the inspiration of the Spirit to instruct us on how to pursue happiness in Christ. 
Notice that the psalm both begins and ends with happiness. Verses 1 and 2, verse 11, and everything in between lays out the course for us to take to experience happiness. Three biblical pathways in the text. First of all, and this is pretty counterintuitive, we experience happiness through repentance. Now, when I mention the word repentance, what comes to mind? It's, it's usually not anything related to happiness. See, we think of repentance and it, it sort of conjures up the picture, that famous picture by the American artist with that, with that uh, middle-aged uh, man and woman. Uh, the guy's got a pitchfork and the woman's looking all sour and mean and nasty and unhappy. And uh, it's called the farmer, right? And his wife. And, and that's, the, that's the expression we think of when it comes to repentance, that, that how can it possibly be connected to happiness? But that's what's the paradox of repentance. Repentance is not an elevator down into despair. But repentance is, in fact, the pathway to joy. When, uh, repentance is the window, if you will, or the door to joy. Look at verses 1 and 2. Blessed. That, that word blessed means happy. There's no way around it. You cannot believe the theological gymnastics I've heard people talk about to try to get wor- rid of the word happiness. Why, why are we so afraid of that word? What we need to be afraid of is where Christians are looking for happiness. We must not be afraid of the word happiness. It's something God desires for us in spite of our circumstances. See, that's the problem. Christians are trying to find happiness the same way the world does, in our circumstances. Our circumstances are unstable. They change. So we begin with finding happiness through repentance. Blessed or happy is the one who is forgiven. Now, this whole psalm contrasts People who are admitting their sin and people that are hiding their sin. And even David himself talks about wasting away because he was not dealing with his sin. Verse 3, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. So repentance isn't an elevator down into despair. Covering up your sin is. Not repenting is the enemy of joy. Repenting and acknowledging your sin, though there may be grief involved for a moment, repentance is the only window into joy. Verse 4, for night and day your hand was heavy upon me, my strength dried up. If you want to lose happiness or joy or cheerfulness or gladness, then when God's hand is heavy upon you and you know it's heavy upon you because you know there's unrepentant sin in your life, the way to miss happiness is to continue on in your unrepentance. Repentance doesn't steal your joy. Unrepentance does. Look at verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. Look, admitting you're a sinner does not lead to a poor self-concept. Denying you're a sinner will lead to a poor self-concept. Do you hear me on that? 
Admitting your sin and that you are a sinner will not lead to a poor self-concept. Denying that you're a sinner will lead you to actually a poor self-concept because you'll know you'll be lying to yourself. It is through forgiveness that we experience joy. Psalm 51, David says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. There is always a party at the end of repentance. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be consequences that we need to face because of our sin. But as far as the attitude of the heart, there will always be a party that follows repentance. We see this illustrated the best in one of the most famous stories in the entire Bible. The parable of the prodigal sons. Remember, both sons were prodigal. Both sons were distant. Even though the elder son remained at home, he was just as distant. He saw his father as a slave driver. He said he'd been slaving for his father all these years. The younger son wanted the father dead. He actually asked for his inheritance before the father was even in the grave. And he took that inheritance and he squandered it all in ungodly, disobedient, sinful, wicked living. He went through it all. He was not happy. That's the other lie of the world. The world tells us that God is the cosmic killjoy. That God's commands will keep us from experiencing happiness. And if you want to be happy, then throw off all of the shackles of God's limitations upon your life. Well, that in fact is not true. The prodigal threw off all the shackles of God's commands and he ended up miserable, as does anyone who ends up throwing off the beauty of God's commands. God's commands are an invitation to our highest delight and pleasure. And God's prohibitions are warnings against our worst nightmare. And the younger son finally came to his senses. And he said, I'll go back. I'm not worthy to be called a son. But my, my father's hired servants are better off than me. So he starts his way back. The father who's been longing for his son to return sees him a long way off, runs out to meet him, showers him with kisses, puts on the best robe, puts the ring on his finger, the ring of being an heir. He's still the son, whether he feels worthy enough to be or not. And they kill the fattened calf and they throw a party because this son of mine was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. At the end of repentance, there is always a party. Repentance is not a depressing topic. Repentance is the pathway to joy. Now, are there people among us this morning who are feeling their bones wasting away as in the heat of summer? Are you feeling the heaviness of God's hand upon you because you're not being honest about your sin? You're just like Adam in Genesis 3. You're hiding. You're sowing fig leaves to try to cover up your own nakedness, shame, and guilt. And when God confronts you, you're blaming other people like Adam blamed Eve. Or Eve made excuses, said the devil wasn't being fair with her. 
See, all of that hiding, blame-shifting, excuse-making, defending yourself, that's not going to bring you happiness. Admitting your sin, bringing it into the light, refusing to continue on in unrepentance, it will bring joy, happiness, glee, cheer, gladness to your soul. Experience happiness through repentance. Then secondly, experience happiness through identity. This entire psalm lays out the descriptions of the blessed person, the happy person, the joyful person, the cheerful person. We've already looked at one of the identities, and that is forgiven. Folks, if forgiveness does not bring you happiness, then you have got to be minimizing either your sin or the consequences of sin or the holiness of God. If, if, if forgiveness doesn't bring you happiness, then you're failing to picture what our sin deserves. If someone was on the edge of a cliff and, the, and the, the ground was giving way and someone pulled them back from sure death, do you think they'd be despondent or neutral or happy? They'd be happy, right? The, the only way for us not to be happy by understanding the identity we have as being forgiven fully is we don't comprehend that which we've been delivered from. We're failing to comprehend the infinite holiness of God and what we were destined for before Christ came into our lives. We were destined for eternal punishment in the lake of fire. And because of the work of Christ, if we put our trust in Christ, transferred our trust from our own works to the work of Christ to forgive us, we are forgiven. What does that mean? Well, Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed or lifted away my transgressions from me. Micah 7, verse 19, he's cast all my sins in the deepest part of the sea. Now, if you really understand your sin, and you really understand the holiness of God, and you read that as far as the east is from the west, that far God's removed your sin. And he's thrown in the deepest part of the sea, choosing never to remember it again, ever. That's happiness. Happiness isn't getting the job you wanted. Happiness isn't finding the spouse you desired. Happiness is being forgiven. And knowing that you know that you know that you know God has put them in the deepest part of the sea. Blessed is the one, verse 1, whose sin is covered and concealed. Isaiah 38, 17, I've thrown all your sins behind my back. That's the one place I can't see, right? It's also the one place I can't get the soap to. Okay? That's what God's saying. I've put all your sins where I, I choose not to see them, not to be able to see them. And then he says, verse 2, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Now notice, it doesn't say, Blessed is the man or the woman who no longer is a sinner. That, that's just not true. Even as Christians, we are still sinners. Now, it doesn't define us. We're righteous as far as our identity, but we're righteous sinners. God has allowed sin to remain within the Christian 
But it says God doesn't count our iniquity. Now, the word count is where we get the New Testament word imputed. As a matter of fact, Paul uses Psalm 32 in Romans 4 to talk about imputation. He actually quotes verses 1 and 2 and says, Blessed or happy is the one to whom sin is not imputed, counted, reckoned, credited. And Paul gives us the doctrine in Romans 4 of double imputation. This isn't a topic for theological conversation in seminary. This is the kind of stuff out of which happiness flows. What is double imputation? Double imputation is that when Christ was on the cross, God imputed or reckoned or counted to Christ our sin, even though it really wasn't Christ's sin, he was perfect. God imputed it to him. But the double imputation is on the cross, Jesus had our sin imputed to him. And through faith in Christ, Christ's righteousness, all of his acts of obedience, his perfect love for God and perfect love for humanity, 24-7 for 33 years, that obedience is imputed, counted, reckoned to us as if we ourselves did it. Now, if you understand what I'm talking about, that has got to lead to happiness. It has to. Now, again, I understand if we've got chemical depression I understand how hard it is for the happiness of of double imputation to break through when all of life around us seems to be broken. But the fact is, if we understand that God treats us and relates to us as if we had been as perfectly obedient before him all the time as Christ was obedient, and that all of his delight favor and blessing is upon us all of the time, even in our worst moments. Because even in our worst moments, W limitation doesn't cease to be true. Then that will lead to happiness. Verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. We're to rejoice and find joy in our righteous standing before God, justified, just as if I'd never sinned, just as if I'd done everything right. The problem is we've become like the world and we're looking for our happiness to flow to us from the things the world looks to, which are circumstances. And we've got to shift the ground of our happiness to that which is constantly shifting around us, circumstances. And we need to find the ground of our happiness in un changing doctrines of grace. Truths of the heart that never change. Norman Vincent Peale is not a good theologian. Not even sure he was a believer. Be that as it may, he was well known as a motivational speaker and one who really followed this power of positive thinking. He didn't want anything negative to get into people's thought life. Well, he was in Hong Kong uh, some years ago, and he went by a tattoo parlor. 
And you could get a tattoo with an anchor or a mermaid or a flag or whatever. But he was struck and was actually aghast when he saw that three words could be tattooed on a human body. And those three words were born to lose. Norman Vincent Peale lost it. Are you kidding me? Who would put that on their body? He walked in and he found a Chinese man that uh, spoke broken English. And he said, do people actually get this? And the owner said, yes, some do. And Peel's like, I don't get it. How could anybody put such garbage on their body? And the Chinese man understood exactly where Peel was going. And he pointed to his head. And he said, before tattoo on body, tattoo already on brain. What's tattooed on your mind? Would you be more aware if it was tattooed on your body? What's tattooed on your mind? Loser? Failure? Or forgiven? Justified? Adopted? Loved, accepted, righteous. We all have tattoos on our minds. The doctrines of grace, double imputation, justification, all the things we're learning afresh in the catechism in our devotional. Those are the truths that lead to happiness. And then thirdly and finally, experience happiness through not just repentance, not just identity, but security. You know, you've heard me say from this very stage over and over and over again that contemporary Christianity has become way too individualized. That the Christian life is primarily corporate and only secondarily individual. And that is true. However, we must also recognize that sometimes God goes out of his way to make us secure as individuals. God goes out of his way sometimes in scripture to make his truths intimately personal so that we know he's talking to us as individuals. And we see this in verses 7 and 8. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me in trouble. Second part of verse 7. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. In all of the circumstances that you're tempted to fear a loss of happiness through, God speaks into those with your name on his lips. I've said before, you really want this to come true? You want to experience the happiness that flows from personal security? Then put your name in wherever you see the first person pronoun. 
You are a hiding place for Bob. You preserve Bob in trouble. You surround Bob with shouts of deliverance. Verse 8, I will instruct Bob and teach Bob in the way Bob should go. I will counsel Bob with my eye upon Bob. Well, guess what? If I read that out loud and I begin to really believe it, it can't help but buoy my heart and produce joy and cheerfulness and gladness, yes, even happiness. The problem is we're getting our focus off of grace and the person and work of Christ and the promises of the gospel, and we're getting our focus on the very things the world focuses on for happiness, which is way too shifting from day to day. And then it ends with verse 11. Three words for happiness. Be glad and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy. You know, what we have in Psalm 32 is a happy sandwich. Verses 1 and 2, first slice of bread. Blessed, blessed, happy, happy, happy. Verse 11, second slice of bread. Be glad, rejoice, shout for joy, happy. And then the meat of the sandwich are the innards, are the fixings. Repentance is a path to joy. Identity in Christ is a path to joy. And personal, individualized intimacy with God, whereby you remember He is for you. His heart toward you is good. Not just toward the church, but to you as an individual Christian. I'm not the first one, by the way, that came up with the idea that the pursuit of happiness is God's will for our lives. John Piper, uh, back in the early 80s, wrote a book called Desiring God. The subtitle are Meditations of a Christian Hedonist. And he says, God is most glorified when we are most happy or most satisfied in Him. Well, all Piper was doing was popularizing the greatest theologian America has ever seen. In the 1700s, there was a man named Jonathan Edwards. And people agree that he was the greatest theologian America has ever presented. I want to finish with a quote from Jonathan Edwards. It is not contrary to Christianity that a man should love himself or, which is the same thing, should love his own happiness. Okay, this isn't liberal, health, wealth, prosperity, name it, claim it, ridiculous theology. This is the greatest theologian, biblical theologian, the United States has ever produced. That a man should love his own happiness is as necessary to his nature as the faculty of the will is. The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows, but enjoyment of God is substance. These are but scattered beings, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. 
What is Jonathan Edwards saying there? He's saying, look, we may be like Chris Gardner. And it's okay to experience joy and fulfillment at dreams that come about. It's okay to rejoice when, of course it is, when God brings you a spouse or when God gives you the grace to live singleness with great joy and happiness. Um, it's, it's okay to find joy in all kinds of other things as long as we recognize those are just shadows. God himself is the substance of our happiness. And so we see the Trinitarian God come together. As we repent before the Father, we experience the happiness of being a son or daughter. As we trust in Jesus and his finished work and believe in the wonderful truth of double imputation, we experience happiness in our identity. And as we recognize the person of the Holy Spirit has been poured out into our hearts to give us a personal, subjective experience of the presence of God and to illumine our minds and hearts to His Word, we have the happiness that comes from being secure in Christ. Where have you been looking for happiness? Will you set your sights on what God's pathway to happiness is. Repentance, identity, and personal security in the personal God. Let's pray. Father, if there's anybody here this morning who's experiencing your heavy hand because of unrepentance, may you grant them the gift of repentance and may they experience it as a window to joy. Father, if any of us as your children are thinking of ourselves as being tattooed on the brain and heart as loser or unloved or disgusting or disappointing, God, that we would recognize that you call us justified, righteous, forgiven, adopted. And Father, for those who think the gospel's for other people, but not for them, who think you love the church, but not them personally. God, might you open our hearts to receive you calling us by name and loving us as you love Jesus himself. And God, if there's anybody here this morning that doesn't know Christ, if they've never transferred their trust from their own efforts and works, to the finished work of Christ, may today be the day of salvation. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.